0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, it's good to see everybody this morning. Wasn't worship wonderful? Glory to God. We could go home right now and have had church, but we're not going to. We're gonna, we're gonna jump into the word, and I've got forty eight minutes, so let's make every let's use every second of it. Did want to mention real quick about the the uh, school uh, or what did we call it? The foundations and supernatural ministry. Uh, we had some people requesting some ministry training, uh, you know, some, some of the ministry teams, and we thought, well, let's just go ahead and do the school that we do overseas. We take this school to the nations and have done it many times. So we figured, let's just do it in-house. And so we're going to be getting into the foundations of ministry, uh, the, the personal foundations, ministry models, how to flow in spiritual gifts, and all of that. And uh, so, man, come on out. It'd be Wednesday nights. It's going to start... The 24th and go through May 12th, that'll be eight sessions. We have an hour and a half at a shot, so hopefully the goal will be not only to give out some information, but to get into impartation. We're going to be praying for people. And the last week, the plan is to do a fire tunnel and uh, just do a time of impartation and activate what we've taught. So it's going to be good. You don't want to miss it. All right, let's get into the Word. Last week, we started a series uh, on... I told you it was going to be a series where there's no way we're going to get through it all. Last Sunday morning, and that is true. I don't think we'll get through the rest of it today. But we're going to to give it a good shot. Uh, We are looking at the tabernacle of David. Amos chapter 8, the Lord says, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. And so there's this longing in God's heart for this expression that King David uh, created that God longs for. it's It's an amazing thing. God didn't long for the recreation of the original that Moses created. Moses had the original temple. It was or the the original tent, the tabernacle. Uh, Usually, we think of the original as the purest form. That's not the case. God doesn't long for what Moses created, nor does He long for the greatest edifice ever raised among men, built by uh, Solomon. Uh, This was this was a well well uh, well beyond a billion dollar building. The gold, the walls were covered in gold. God doesn't long for that. He longs for the interim. Edifice in the middle there. It was a little pup tent erected by David, and there was something about that that God longs for, and so that's what we're looking at. It what is what was it about the tabernacle of David that God was so affectionate about? That God desired, and why is it that God desired that and? How how should we posture our heart to provide that for the Lord? That's what we want to look at. We were looking at King David last week, and King David is an amazing man. You cannot read the scriptures without coming to the conclusion that God really loves King David. For centuries, you would read this phrase, For the sake of David, I will do such and such. There was something about the posture of David's heart that hooked God's heart and Solomon years later would even leverage that in prayer. He would remind God of the price his father paid and utilize that in prayer to move God's heart. We see it in Psalm 132 and it begins with this phrase different translations translate it different ways but essentially it says this. O Lord, remember David and the suffering he endured. I am convinced that was a psalm written by Solomon. One of the reasons I'm convinced that Solomon wrote it is because it tracks so well with Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. But Solomon understood something that many of us fail to realize. That the suffering of one of God's servants in the will of God moves God's heart. Not just in the moment of suffering, but for generations, it will continue to move the heart of God. So much so that Solomon would pray to God and remind God of the sufferings of a dead guy. He would remind God of the sufferings of somebody that was long gone, and it still moved the heart of God. It provided Solomon intercessory leverage with God. You need to realize that your suffering, the pain you go through, and you posturing your heart right before the Lord through that pain moves God's heart. And it's not something that just moves him in the moment. It literally gives you a platform of influence with the heart of God. Your praise in the midst of hardship provides access to God's heart from then on. David wrote in Psalm 22, He begins it in verse 1, he says, My my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's that famous psalm, Uh, it's a messianic psalm, it was a prophetic psalm that was foreshadowing Jesus to come, and Jesus declared that hanging on the cross. But the next verse is an equally, well, almost as famous a verse, and it says this, God inhabits the praises of his people, or the praises of Israel. Those two principles cannot be fully understood until you bring those two verses together. It was in the midst of these feelings of rejection and abandonment by God that King David, and he was the one who wrote that psalm, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then at the very next breath, his pen writes, God inhabits the praises of Israel. Literally that word inhabits Means to sit down and it means to take a seat, it means to enthrone. Matter of fact, the Japanese version of that verse literally says, When God's people worship, He puts a throne in the midst and sits there. Our worship is literally building a seat from which God can rule and reign. But we cannot fully understand that principle without understanding that the previous verse is an essential component to really building God a throne. It's that principle of when life seems to contradict what God told us in his word, and we worship him anyway. When we refuse to interpret God through our circumstance, but instead we interpret our circumstances through God. And that's easy to say on a Sunday morning after a great worship service, but it's not always easy to do. When we've been disappointed and we felt like, God, you made promises you didn't come through on. And we take that stand and we say, God, I don't understand, but I know this. The bedrock of my life is you are good. That provides a throne from which God can begin to rule and reign. And what we need to realize is that not only provides a throne for God, it establishes our own personal authority in the Lord. When we have a longing to provide a throne for heaven, heaven begins to build a throne from which we can begin to release things in the earth. And I'm gonna show you that, God willing, this morning. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to enter this, so let's just pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And Father, I ask that you would instruct us Oh, I just got to say it again, that that phrase from that song, Jesus, the High King of Heaven. Oh, Jesus, High King of Heaven, come in and rule and reign in our lives through your word this morning. Establish your kingdom by establishing your truth. Lord, drop the plumb line this morning and let us align with your word. Correct us, encourage us, strengthen us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I love that passage. I tell you what, why don't you go ahead and turn there? Uh, we, we'll probably get to it. Uh, Psalm 132, the verse one that I just, just quoted Oh uh, Lord, remember David and the affliction that he suffered or the suffering he endured. Uh, I love that passage, but you really, you really can't fully understand that passage. There's two other passages that go together. Uh, let me throw you out three passages that you really need to read side by side to get the fuller picture. And all of these speak of David. Uh, Psalm 132, the whole passage. 1 Kings chapter eight, and this is Solomon's Solomon. David's son and the, the one who inherited his throne. It's his dedication of the temple that David saved up supplies for to build. And then 2 Samuel chapter 7. This was David's conversation with Nathan when he said, I want to build a temple for the Lord. And so David says to, to Nathan, the prophet, he says, hey, he said, it's not right that I live in a a, uh, a castle of cedar, but God remains in a tent. And Nathan looks at him and says, David, do whatever's in your heart. And then that night, Nathan gets home with the Lord and the Lord corrects Nathan and says, David's not the one to build me a, a, a temple because David is a man of blood. And so Nathan comes back and brings a correction to his word, but then begins to tell David, if you look, you look at this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's a beautiful thing because David said, I want to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to build your house. You want to build me a house? Ain't going to happen, but I'm going to build your house. I'm going to establish your throne for generations. And you will never fail to have a son that rules from your throne as long as they serve me. And to this day, King Jesus is known as the Son of David. God's affection for David was so great that he identifies the Son of God himself as the Son of David. And Jesus rules and reigns from the throne of David, fulfilling the word that God gave to David. You will never fail to have a son that rules from your throne. So in 1st or 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is expressing this desire that is outlined in Psalm 132. So Psalm 132 is really the backstory. Let me turn to that and we're going to look at that passage. That's, that's where we'll jump in this morning. Psalm 132. And it's really the backstory on much of what we know about David. Now, David, if you ask people about King David, they'll tell you things like David killing Goliath and, and uh, maybe David's of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband to cover up his sin. There, these are the, 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 uh, the, the stories that occupy David's life. But really what's important about David's life is the backstory. The details that often aren't known about David. And we find this in Psalm 132. Let's read. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. I'm reading from the ESV. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. So this is a prayer being prayed. God, remember what David went through and remember in his favor. Verse 2, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. It's what he was communicating to the prophet Nathan. He's saying, it's not right. I'm not going to have rest until God has a resting place. I want a place for God's presence, to reside. I want to play that David was passionate about giving God a seat of authority in the earth. Verse 6, Behold, we heard about it in Ephothra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might." Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Again, the writer of this psalm is leveraging David's life and what David had secured with the heart of God for the present circumstance. He says, for the sake of David, do not turn away your face Away, the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which you will not turn back. One of your sons, uh, the one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, I shall teach them, their and their sons forever shall sit on their throne. And so, I this is why I believe it was Solomon who wrote this passage. He's reminding God of the promise that God made to David, and then saying, "Lord, remember." remember David for my sake. Uh, secure the throne upon which I sit. And we see when, da- when Solomon dedicates the temple, he reminds the Lord of some of the things his dad told him. Now we know that Solomon wrote several passages of scripture, one of which was many of the Proverbs. In some of those proverbs. Solomon shares that he sat on David's knee as a little boy and David would instruct him. Can you imagine that? King David telling you the stories, the backstory, the secrets to his life. And that is what Solomon is bringing to the table and putting into print in this passage. He's telling some of the secrets to David's history that we would not have known about had God, had David not confided in Solomon and God not led Solomon to put this into print. So let's look at this again. He says, remember David, he's leveraging David's history with God. He's telling him what David told him. He said, listen, I had a passion in my heart to provide a resting place for the Lord. I wanted God to have a place in the earth. I wanted the Lord's presence to be entertained. That is the secret. It is the the heart of the tabernacle of David. I said it last week and I'll say it again that the tabernacle of David is simply David externalizing his internal history with God. David established something with God. David is known as a man after God's heart. That word after is an action word. Literally, it means David was a man in hot pursuit of the heart of God. David created a, a, a system of worship by which he would pursue the Lord. And he created the tabernacle of David to invite others into his pursuit. So that they could enjoy for free what David had broken into. And it was in this way that David discovered what we talked about last week. The, the priesthood and the order of Melchizedek. David was hungry to, to encounter God. So we find the backstory here. Look at verse five. He says, I'm not going to rest until the Lord has a resting place. And then in verse six, what, what is going on here is Solomon is expressing a story that his father told him. Let's look at what it says here. Behold, we heard about it in Ephathra. We found it in the fields of jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. What is that talking about? Well, Ephothra is another name for the city of Bethlehem. David, uh, matter of fact, the angels know Bethlehem as the city of David. Scripture, there's two cities in scripture that are known as the city of David. There's Jerusalem, the city of David, and there's Bethlehem, the city of David. One he established and one produced him. And I I love that, that from the angel's perspective, I, I believe that angels look at cities based upon who those cities produced. I believe they look across the earth and they're not saying New York and San Francisco and Ankeny. They're looking at that and they're looking at New York and saying that is the city of David Wilkerson. That is the city of Bob Phillips. That is the city, fill in the blank. And there needs to be something in us that says, God, when you look at Ankeny, Lord. Matter of fact, if you read this passage where Solomon is dedicating the temple, he gives us a clue in there. He says, in what, 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 what did I say it was? It was 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, or, or no, 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, he says, Lord, you did not choose a city in which you would dwell. You never chose a city, but you chose my father, David. Now there's another passage that says God did choose Jerusalem. So what, what are we to do with this contradiction? Here's what I believe. I believe God says, I choose Jerusalem Because you did, and I choose you. God didn't have his heart set on Jerusalem, but David did because David understood some history. And when David chose it, God says, so do I. I don't need God to choose Ankeny. I just need to posture myself so he'll choose me. I've already chosen Ankeny for a resting place for the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so God's looking for a people that will posture themselves in such a way that God will choose them. And so he says, We heard about it in Ephathra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Jar is, in other words, an abbreviated phrase for a place called Coriath Jerem. Coriath Jerem was the place of Abinadab, and Abinadab was the overseer of the ark. He was the one that inherited the thing. He ended up having it on his property for 20 years. What happened is, King Saul went and retrieved the ark because under the Saul regime, the ark, the presence of God was simply a means to an end. And so when it came time for battle, they went and took the ark and they took it into battle and it was captured by the Philistines. And they opened it and 50,000 Philistines died. And they said, we don't want it anymore. Matter of fact, they sent it to another city and it says tumors broke out. And it depends on the translation. Some translations call it, say that hemorrhoids broke out. So let's just put it this way: if you're not right with God, but you're in the presence of God, it will cause great discomfort. Okay? <laughs> Something was going on, and there was, and so they didn't want it. They they got rid of it. And finally they asked one of their holy men, and he said, This is what you do. You put the ark on a new cart and put it on, put, harness it to a female, uh, a female c- a cow or an oxen that had just given birth, put its offspring in a, a, a pen, and then let it loose. And if it goes and it brings it back to Israel, we know that we're going to be okay. It's a fascinating picture, because what it's saying is, the anointing of the presence on this cart will come over that animal and cause it to live contrary to its nature its udders would be full of milk and ready to nurse and this the little the little calf would be you know, bah, bellowing, wanting to, wanting to eat. And the mother would have naturally been attracted. Her nature would have been to go and rescue her offspring. But something about the presence caused that animal to live contrary to its nature. And so the ark made it back. But they didn't want, they didn't want it front and center. So they sent it out to Abinadab's house where it resided for 20 years. Now, I did, I did a, some study on this. But let me read this to you. The ark resided at the tabernacle in Shiloh with Eli. It was retrieved by Saul for the purpose of war in the 29th year of his 42-year reign. It was captured and retained by the Philistines for seven months. It went to Beth Shemesh for a short time and they refused it after opening it, losing the 50,000 people. Then it went to Kariath-Jerim in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. David attempted to bring it from Abinadab's in kariath Jerem, but Uzzah was smitten and he abandoned the idea and it ended up at Obed-Edom's house. Obed-Edom had it for three months and David heard, oh man, his corn stalks are bigger, his, cow, his pigs are fatter. Well, I guess they didn't have pigs, they were Jewish. They, his, his, his cows are fatter. You know, the brisket is juicier on Obed's house. He said, well, we need to get the ark to it. It's the Obed-Edom factor. The presence was there. And so then it was brought to Jerusalem by David. So we need to do the math. Saul reigned 42 years. David was 30 when Saul died. So David was born in the 12th year of Saul's reign. When Saul was approximately 54 years old. David was 17 to 18 years old, therefore, when the ark was moved to Jar or Kariath-Jerim where it resided for the next 12 to 13 years until David moved it to Obed-Edom's house for three months. Or, or David was 17 to 18 years old, and the, yeah, and then it was moved to Obed-Edom's house. Uh, it, it resided there for 20 years. David didn't bring it to Jerusalem until he was crowned over the entire nation at 37 and a half. So, let, let, so here's the point. David was around the age where he fought Goliath when the presence arrived outside of Bethlehem. And what Solomon is reiterating here is a story his dad told him. And what he told him is, Solomon, I heard about it when I was in Ephathra. I heard about the presence, the ark of God, when I was living in Bethlehem. We heard rumors that it had arrived near us. And we said... Let's go and see this thing. We found it in the fields of Jar or kariath Jerem. Even as a young man, there was something in David that was hungry to be around the presence. He heard a rumor, he sought it out, and David had some encounter with the Ark of the Covenant as a young man. And I would propose to you that it's not a coincidence that around the time of his encounter was also the time where David went and killed Goliath. And I believe that this passage gives us the clue as to what made David different than other men. This was the scenario that ruined King David for life. He had an encounter he never recovered from. He heard about it and he sought it out. And David never recovered. And it was from here on that David became a man after God's heart. David was zealous to provide a resting place for the Lord. I believe that was the backstory on why David penned the psalm we talked about last week, Psalm 24. When David, what we said last week is David asked a question no one else was asking and received answers in revelation no one else had. And that was that there was another way into the presence of God. David asked a question that consensus theology had already answered. Psalm 24, he cries, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And then he answers his own question. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And David gives a whole new criteria to those who could stand in the holy place. David already knew what consensus theology said. He knew what the law said. You had to be of the Levitical priesthood. You had to have a biological lineage that went back through the Levitical line. Otherwise, you were on the outside. You couldn't serve as a priest. But there was something in David's heart through that encounter that could never take no for an answer. And he began to ask the Lord, God, how, how can I ascend the hill of the Lord? And he discovered another way in. He discovered another priesthood in Psalm 24, gives us the criteria of the Melchizedek priesthood. Clean hands, a pure heart, you lift not your soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And again, I believe that and only that explains why David had this fascination with the city of Jerusalem, so much so that when he killed Goliath, he grabbed Goliath's head and delivered it to the city of Jerusalem. It was an enemy citadel. And it was like a prophetic act. I've taken him down, and someday I'm coming for you because I want want this city because this was the seat of the king, Melchizedek, who was a priest king. David discovered the tracks of this thing. And so that's why David was able to build a structure for worship that no one else was allowed to enter into. When God gave the blueprint to Moses, it was a three-tiered system. There was the outer court, the inner court, and the holiest of all. And the only person that could go into the holy of holies was the high priest and that once a year. Same thing with Solomon's structure. But in the interim time, David developed this structure for worship where there was no three-tiered system. It was just a little structure, and they worshiped the Lord night and day. And the priests themselves were the veil. They were the things that stood between the people and the judgment of God. And they entertained the presence of the Lord. And David, out of his own pocketbook, funded worshipers. He, he funded scribes that would write down what the Lord was saying. Those, those that would write down the psalms that they were getting from the Lord. He funded all these musicians people to serve the lord It's why david wrote come bless the lord all you servants of the lord who stand by night in the house of the lord he's referring to those he had hired to entertain the presence of the lord and all of this was what is meant by the tabernacle of david And when God affectionately longs for the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, what God is looking for is a generation that shares the heart of David, a people who are hungry for the presence of the Lord. You see, David could never use the presence of God as a means to his selfish ends. David, David wasn't like Saul. He didn't look at it. Well, let's get God back on the scene because we have a battle to fight. To David, all his means were to the end of securing the presence. If he could entertain the presence of God and God was hosted well, David knew he was a success. When we talk about rebuilding the tabernacle of David, that is what is meant by the tabernacle of David. A people whose heart burns for the presence of God. That when we come in here in the morning, on Sunday morning to worship Him. When we come in here on Friday morning to again worship Him and give Him the honor to His name. When we come in here Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for prayer. What we're doing is we're cultivating an environment where God feels welcomed. Where He is the guest of honor That the celebration is not with God in the shadows, but He's front and center. That is the secret of David's reign. That's why the kingdom under David exponentially increased. The boundary lines increased under David's reign exponentially. It was because David put God's presence front and center. And that is what God is looking for. A people who will put His presence as their supreme pursuit. And when God has that, he begins to establish his reign from the midst of those people. God begins to move in the earth. And what I'm saying this morning is God, at this moment in human history, is rebuilding the tabernacle of David. He's establishing outposts of heaven all over the earth. There's a reason that this last 20 years has seen the rise, the unprecedented rise of what we call houses of prayer. 25 years ago, you really didn't hear about 24-7 worship and intercession. If you did, it was a very rare thing and people were just puzzled by the, the thought of it. It seemed impractical. And now we have this thing of entertaining the presence of God. It's because God is Re establishing the tabernacle of David. And it's the place from which God will extend his scepter into the earth and shape history. But God has to find a people that long for his presence. I'll tell you the danger for a pastor that understands these principles the danger is that attracting God's presence simply becomes another church growth technique. Because if you can get God in the house, people will come. And the danger is that we inadvertently make God a means to our selfish end. Church growth is wonderful, and, and, and all of those things, that's a, that, is, that is a noble pursuit. But the ultimate pursuit is entertaining God for God's sake. And believe me, I want, as ma- I want God in the house, and I want as many people to come under the canopy of His presence. But God is not a means to an end. And all of us need to be very careful. It's like that song we sang this morning, there's nothing better than you. Or in the words of Leif Hetland, the best thing about God is God. The best thing about Him is Him. Not what we get from him. Everything else is a fringe benefit. And you'll know where your heart is by what comes out of your mouth in the midst of suffering. Because when those fringe benefits aren't being delivered, do we still stand that ground of praise? and establish his throne. Let's read on here in verse 7. He says, let's go worship. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Verse 8, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. I believe this is Solomon now reminding God of what David said and the story he heard. And he's saying, arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, the, 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 the temple that we built, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints shout for joy. And then he reminds the Lord again, Lord, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. That would be Solomon. Solomon was anointed to take David's place. The Lord swore to David, a sure oath from which he would not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, then I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. Remember, Solomon declared at the dedication of the temple that God had not chosen Jerusalem or Zion, but God chose David. Here, Solomon now says that God did choose Zion, which is another word for, for Jerusalem. But it's because God chose David and David chose Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her with provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies will be clothed with shame by him, but on him his crown will shine. And so God is is promising to establish David's authority and in so doing establish Solomon's authority. And Solomon is reminding God of that promise because he's wanting the blessing of God on his kingdom. And if you look back at this passage where David first shares with Nathan his desire. Again, it's, it's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let's look at that. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David confides in Nathan. Verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar. That's a big deal. That's, that's like really nice woodwork. Okay. That's the high end stuff. But the ark of God dwells in a tent and Nathan said to the king, go do all is in your, that is in your heart for the king is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought it up, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you and I will make you for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the, I, the Lord, will make for you a house. Let's pause there. What he's saying is, David, you're, there's coming a day where Israel's going to have peace with its enemies. That came the next generation. Solomon was not a man of war. David took, David took land through war, Solomon just made alliances, and they had peace with their enemies. David was wanting to provide a resting place for the Lord. That was his heart. But the Lord said, I'm giving you a resting place, and I'm going to grant you authority. We need to realize that spiritual authority is established in the battle of worship. When you are going through hardship again, and you refuse to, to accuse God. You refuse uh, to question the motives of God, and you take that stand. And understand, I'm not talking about not having a battle, an internal battle. I'm not talking about wrestling with these, these things. I'm talking about when you come to those conclusions, and you stand on the ground of God's goodness, and you declare that in the midst of your disappointment, You are securing authority in the Spirit in that way. There's something of authority that's established there that you can extend it to others. I cannot read this passage without thinking of that board meeting I've talked about before. And we we got done kind of early and so I stood up and began to lay hands on the different elders in the room. We're like celebrating. We're going to get home early tonight. This is amazing. Let's pray. And so I began to lay hands on them and laid hands on, I believe, Ray Henderson first. And then I went to uh, Rick Arrowood. And then I laid hands on Fred Stoker. And when I laid hands on Fred, I was stunned by what I saw. Fred was this mammoth battering ram in the spirit. It was like this big around. It was this huge highly polished ornate battering ram that would have taken several dozen men to carry and to use at a gate and it had this these bands of bronze on it and these huge uh like bolts sticking out of it and there was this this big uh carved animal you could stick flame you know uh burning things in its mouth that you could use to batter uh, a gate and it would start it on fire and you could take a city and that was Fred in the spirit. I was praying for him. I opened my eyes and there's Fred. Fred's a big guy, but he's not that big. And I'd close my eyes and I'd see him. And I'd, it was an amazing thing. I always feel bad for the first few people you pray for because it's not flowing yet. So I backed up and put my hands back on Rick. And I saw Rick in the spirit. And I saw him years ago. He was a younger man. <laughs> but he was at a keyboards in the middle of the night weeping just crying, but declaring the goodness of God and worshiping the Lord. And I knew in my spirit, because I knew, I knew a little bit about his story. I know much more today because I've asked him about it. But it was during the failure of his first marriage. And he and his children were abandoned and just broken. And Rick, as a pastor, had to resign his position Not only was his family blown apart, but his vocation. He had to step down from ministry. And I could feel when I was praying for him, the tremendous anxiety and self-doubt and all that he was wrestling with. But in the midst of that, Rick was playing the keyboards in the middle of the night, just worshiping the Lord. And there was something being established there. If you know his precious bride, Carrie, And a little of her story. We had them tell their story of, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And uh, what an amazing story about Carrie's own heartbreak. And God brought them together. And if if you would have read their history in advance and now look at it in retrospect, you would be absolutely blown away at these children that they've produced. And God has been so faithful, so much so that we just prayed over one to become one of our new pastors, Pastor Chantel. It's an amazing story how God kept this family and was faithful. But when Rick was worshiping, I'm telling you, I felt it in my spirit. I could feel the emotion and it just broke me in half. The fear, the anxiety, the heartbreak. That Rick was feeling. But in the midst of that, he was establishing worship and worshiping the Lord. And I'm telling you, there's an authority. You want breakthrough for your family? You're going through something similar? Search out Rick and Carrie and Have them put their oily hands on your head and release something. Because they've established something in the Spirit through building a throne of worship. Wasn't this last week? It was the week before we were in prayer, winding down our prayer time. And uh, I saw this picture. It was like we were all dragging bags of bricks in here. We're brag- dragging these big bags, and we'd open our bag and we'd all take our bricks out. And we were building a throne for King Jesus. And there was a brick of our heartache in this circumstance, and a brick of our heartache in that circumstance. And all these bricks, they were victories we won. And the victory that was established was not necessarily the outcome that we were praying for. It wasn't the external victory of the circumstance we were crying out to God to change. Sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. But the victory that was established was the internal ground in our own heart. That in spite of that, those massive disappointments and hardships that we kept our praise on, that we stood our ground and we continued to declare God is good. And each one of us had our own bag that we drug in here. And we dusted off those victories. And we all added them when we were building a throne of praise and worship to God. And that is the seat from which God rules. He rules in the midst of our praise. You want to extend the authority of heaven into the earth? Then take advantage of those times of your deepest disappointments. Those opportunities must be seized. Hopefully they come, come about very, very seldom. But when they do, don't miss the opportunity to declare his worth in the midst of that disappointment. Because there's something more valuable about that type of worship. You see this whole thing called sin, the whole reason Jesus needed to come was because of the accusation of an enemy in the garden that tried to seduce Adam and Eve and to believe a lie about God. In the midst of paradise, they sided against God and believed a lie about God. But Jesus won this thing back, not in paradise, but in a wilderness and on a cross. And it's not a coincidence that as Jesus hung there, tortured and dying, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew the next verse. And when Jesus said, into thy hands I commit my spirit, what he was declaring is, God, the feelings I feel now are alien to my existence up until this point. Because I'm now separated from my Father. But Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. I still trust you, even though you've allowed this type of treatment to be executed upon me. He trusted God. And with that, he wrested control back from the enemy. And I'm telling you that authority in your life is established by you posturing yourselves in those crucial moments of deep disappointment And declaring, God, I don't understand why this is happening. But this I know. This is not a reflection on you. You are good. I live in a fallen world. And I'm here to to press your crown rights on this fallen world. And see situations change. But whether they do or they don't. This I know. You are good. That's what David did. That's what Jesus did. And that's how the throne of God is established in a region and in our personal lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you did for us. Lord, I know that there's people here this morning that are going through one of the darkest moments of their life. Lord, I ask that your spirit would come and comfort them. And Lord, I ask that you would open the eyes of their understanding in this moment that they would see the pathway out is worship. Lord, I ask that you'd meet them. But Lord, even more than that, I ask that you'd give them vengeance on the enemy that is trying to ravage their life. Lord, that you'd give them vengeance by putting a praise in their heart and they would enthrone you in the midst of this hardship. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.